Hello and welcome to episode 6 of The Call of Nature. We are a grassroots podcast uh, about nature and wildlife here in the UK for everyday people just like you. Um, Now, if you're new to the podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you along. Thanks for pressing play and uh, we hope you enjoy what you hear today. And welcome back to all of our existing listeners. Um, We've had a big upturn in uh, in new listeners but we've also had lots of people getting in touch with us who've heard a few episodes and decided to share some of their experiences and get involved in the show which has been really cool and uh, we're all very touched by that so um, the more the merrier come and join us. I'm joined today by my two glamorous co-hosts Pete and Gareth and uh, we've got some exciting stuff on the show today. So first up, we've got a chat that Pete had with one of our listeners, Lynn, talking about the relationship between food choices and nature. And that was really that was really fun and interesting. Then we've got a little adventure that I had the other night out looking for glowworms. Then we've got a chat that Gareth had with a friend of his called Dan, who is mad about plants. And then Pete's going to tell us a little bit about a story he had uh, with an encounter with some hedgehogs and we're going to talk a little bit about hedgehogs in general. But before that, we've got the most fun part of the show, which is our legal disclaimer, which Pete is going to tell us. Here it is, folks. The views and opinions expressed in The Call of Nature are those of whoever expressed them. They do not reflect those of any other organisation or agency. It's a strong performance there, Pete. Thank you. I've been practising all week. (laughs) That's why it only took you three goes to get it right. (laughs) Hi, boys. How you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Very well, thank you. Have you had some? uh, Have you had any interesting nature moments since we last uh, since we last got together to make a podcast? Yeah, I've kind of been allowed out to some wildlife places this week in work, so I've had a few actually. Oh, to what, tell us about one, maybe. Uh, so actually, I would tell you the actual experiences. So I was out today and it was lovely sunshine. I was seeing this amazing like meadow site. And it's a time of year. And I was a bit inspired by your dad uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about spiders' webs. And there's these amazing funnel-webbed spiders out everywhere. And I, I love to like look in the little funnel and see how big the spider is. I don't know if it's a little kid thing or whatever it is, but... It's really fun. And this one, it just literally wallpapered its funnel with burnet moths, which are these sort of black and red, really sort of quite showy, distinct mock day flying moths. And it just must have had a specialist like art of capturing these moths because the whole funnel was just literally papered with them. Wow, that's incredible. And they have, I love burnet moths. They're, they're kind of like a, a silky, deep black and, and sort of crimson, aren't they? So that's a... That's some serious, uh, serious style that that spider had. Yeah, and, and none of them seem to be eaten. So I, th- I did wonder: is it like a decoration thing rather than a sustenance thing? Oh, who knows? Spiders, yeah, evolving. Well, that's yeah, that's really cool, Pete. Um, what 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 have you seen this week? Well, my uh, my nature experience has been an indirect one, but it's been really really exciting for me. So you guys know that we, when we first launched, we went on Facebook first, then Gareth moved us onto Twitter more recently. Well, last week. Uh, I picked up Instagram. We decided it was time to go with Instagram. And it's been fantastic. I've been surrounded for a week with just thousands of incredible pics and and videos and drawings of wildlife. 
and the interactions with people has been great as well. We've had some really nice feedback, including from uh, Tara and Void is the New Black today, uh, uh, encouraging us about the show. We've had a couple of people were telling us about their stories of indoor wildlife, a bit like yours with the herring gull in the previous episode. Uh, uh, so thanks to Jan and Annie for those. Uh, we've been interacting with other podcasts, such as UK Wildlife Podcast, which is great, Nature Spot, which I've uh, been really enjoying, Into the Wild, we've uh, uh, we've been chatting together, and we had a nice message today from a chap in the States about uh, who runs Nature Revisited, and I recommend all of them, folks. They're great. Uh, hopefully next week we'll have a magic moment from Vaughan, another listener, and uh, later in the show I'm going to play, in fact, we're going to play out, instead of having our usual music at the end, we're going to play out with a lovely recording of a dawn chorus sent in by... Uh, Mark. Uh, so uh, thank you, all of you. Uh, and yeah, that's just been a wonderful experience. That's tremendous work, Pete. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks, guys. My my experience um, this week is actually uh, uh, I managed to record it. So uh, so it's going to be a little bit later on the show. And it was me seeing uh, glowworms for the first time, which was yeah, that was in, that was really cool. One of the most controversial topics when it comes to wildlife conservation our people's food choices and the way we produce our food. It can be done in a really wildlife-friendly way, but it can also be done in a really damaging way. And it's something we need to address. And Pete's had a really interesting chat with Lynn about just this topic. Right then, so we're joined today by my friend Lynn Birmingham, who has many strings to her bow. She's furloughed from her job at the moment, but also runs a vegan bakery business. And you can find that on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for the word yumptious, part of yumptious vegan food. Lynn also runs Bridport Vegan Market and Wild Homes UK on Instagram, which has advice on wildlife gardening, which you can access. So Lynn, welcome. Hello. The reason we've got you on today, Lynn, is to talk about veganism and nature, isn't it? It is. So Lynn, why is veganism important to nature? It's surprising because I think people just think about um, vegans as like loving fluffy things and, you know, everything's kind of lovely and sweet. But it's there's more to it than that. Um, You know, there's just a lot of people on the planet right now. And with the huge consumption of meat and dairy, um, we just can't possibly manage to feed the whole population of the planet. The amount of water, the land use, the deforestation, the overfishing. Something like 70% of the grain that is produced goes to livestock. Blimey. And if you can cut down, you reduce your carbon footprint by approximately 73%. By becoming vegan? By becoming vegan. Well. Or at least if you try, you know, now and again, drop drop a bit of meat off your meal through the week. Go meat free for a couple of days. It helps. That's very interesting. So there's a, a strong environmental case, you're saying, for, for going vegan to benefit nature. Something I have experience of is having going onto a whole food diet and being what they call a flexitarian. So I'll eat whole food, plant-based whole food a lot of the time. And then other times, often when I've got my boy here, uh, I'll eat other stuff and, and, and more animal-derived uh, foods. What do you think of that, Lynn? Is that a good thing to do? It really is. I mean, I'm, you know, I obviously don't expect everyone to go full on vegan straight away. Um, I think that's unrealistic to expect the whole planet to go vegan, you know, and I'm not even going to consider that's going to be an option. But if people at least try it, I think sometimes people have a 
an image of vegan food being really boring, really healthy all the time. It's not always healthy. I make lots of pies, pasties, stuff mm-hmm. like that. I just do them in a little healthier way, make, maybe make them wholemeal, because I do believe in the whole food thing. It's really good for you. In fact, I've been reading this amazing book called How Not to Diet, and it, it's just a brilliant book about eating whole food and plant-based food and the difference it makes for your body. So it's not just about the environment. I mean, it's incredibly good for you as a, as a human being. Well, I must agree on two counts. One is I've tasted the pastries that you used to bring into the office and they're amazing. Uh, I know I've also had vegan cakes and things, which were very good. And what I can say is that when I've stuck to a whole food diet, my energy levels have been way up. Uh, and I've also felt good about myself for those other things, you know, for the for the for the well-being of animals and for the, uh, the positive impact on the environment. Is that something you hear from people a lot? Yeah, I mean, personally, because I, um, I speak to a lot of people when I'm running my when I'm running my markets and when I'm running my store, which isn't very much at the moment, but hopefully soon. And I get a lot of people saying I'm not a vegan, but I do like vegan food um, and I, eat, you know, maybe three or four meals a week will have as vegan or vegetarian. And I'll always say, well, that really helps. You know, it really, really helps. Every meal that you can drop down on your dairy and meat intake will make a difference. Um, and hopefully you'll you'll enjoy it so much that you'll want to do it more. I mean, I've been doing it thirty over thirty years now. Impressive. So I've got a bit more experience than the average. <laughs> and you've seen people use this as a sort of gateway approach then, and ended up becoming more more committed to to not eating animal products. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a preachy vegan. I probably was back when I was sort of a teenager, but uh-huh. I'm not a preachy vegan. I just show people by giving them really good tasting food. And I, I like to make food that people recognise. So, you know, a good curry, a good pie, a good pasty, a nice pudding. Um, it doesn't always have to be about, you know, eating nice salady things all the time. It, I want to show people that they can eat food that they are used to, you know. I'm not trying to try and convert them all to my lovely health food salads that I eat every day. <laughs> But I do drink a lot of wine still as well, though. <laughs> I'm not Brilliant. a puritanical by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear that you haven't changed it, Lynn. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Lynn, and for telling us all about veganism. There you go, folks. Uh, there's a, there's something to be thinking about if you've, if you've not thought about it before. Uh, it sounds like uh, it's winds in every direction. Thank you, Lynn. Yeah, thanks, Pete. It's been great. It's been really good to catch up. Oh, that's really interesting from Lynn there. And I think one of the things it shows that if people are serious about helping wildlife recover, it does mean that you're going to have to make some behavioural change in your life. And there's lots of options out there. But what Lynn's described is that food choices and maybe thinking a little bit about wildlife and the food you eat is one of those that can make a real difference. Yep, that's right, Gareth. And uh, and speaking of behaviour, Chris has been pursuing one of his favourite behaviours. That's heading into the undergrowth at night. This time... It's a successful mission to his local churchyard. Okay, so it's uh, it's twenty past ten, Thursday evening. I'm out wandering around uh, because I, I'm looking for glowworms. Um, now I've come out about this is probably the fourth time. I've been out wandering around uh, up the lane near my house uh, looking for glowworms because I've heard that they were up here. I've had a tip-off 
from uh, from someone. And I've just seen my first one. Oh, you can hear tawny owls there. The crickets, hopefully, grasshoppers. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited because because uh, <laughs> I thought it was going to be another fruitless exercise, wandering around in the dark, when thinking mm, I should really be going to bed soon. I've got to go to work. But um, yeah, I saw one. It was um, brighter than I thought it would be, um, and uh, and very like a fluorescent green colour. Almost like a neon fluoro green. You know you get them little like glow sticks. If you're a, a person of the age that I am, you'll remember going to raves and you used to get glow sticks or festivals or whatever and you crack them like on fireworks night and stuff and they glow green. It's exactly that, but just like shrunk down, a bit smaller. And this little thing was hiding away in a bush did a bit of glowing. I watched it, trying to tried to get a photo on my phone, but it's too dark. Um, little glowworms. How exciting. Um, I'm going to walk around for a bit now because I've been spurred on by seeing one uh, that I might see more. Anyway, it was pretty cool. So I've just run into some people in the in the cemetery in the dark doing the same thing as I was doing. Your name's, do you say your name's Helen? Yeah, we're out doing our annual glowworm hunt. Well, my family's annual glowworm hunt with some friends who've never done it before. There's quite a lot to of see you. their first glowworms. <laughs> yeah. Did you see some? We've seen three or four so far, so not many. Has anyone not seen one before? I haven't, I haven't seen one, one before. <laughs> what, what did you think? I've never seen one before. I came out, it's the first time. I got a tip off of one of my geeky nature friends. And uh, yeah, what did you think? That was good. It was good. They're, they're bright. Yeah, they're brighter than I thought before. I had some uh, vision of you know, like that film Avatar, and they go into the forest, and there's like a big like thing of light. So it wasn't quite that, was it? No. no. You've got to look hard to see them, I think, because the grass is quite long at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, they're like they're fluorescent green, aren't they? I think maybe give it a few, a couple, two or three weeks, and you might um, you might get a better better look at them yeah they're quite cool sorry i know it's weird like someone turning <laughs> up and turning on the recording thing. but yeah thanks so, yeah, are you still recording yeah i'm still recording <laughs> <laughs> yeah have you guys been drinking as well as glow no, no. hunting well i don't know jenny might have been maybe oh excuse me mom i think i am <laughs> But right. we definitely haven't. Well, thanks for it. It's, pa it's past my bedtime. So. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good luck. Hope you see some more. Bye. That sounded lots of fun, Chris. I haven't seen a glowworm uh, since I was a kid, and that was in the churchyard as well. I wasn't expecting it to be so lively and for you to make friends down there and all have such a laugh together. <laughs> no, neither was I. I don't think they were expecting to, for someone to stick a, a microphone uh, up next to their face either. <laughs> I dare say. But they were good sports. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just really nice to have those random experiences um, to be able to share them with, like, other people, even though I couldn't see what any of them looked like because it was pitch dark. <laughs> 
Now, Dr. Gareth has been getting a little bit grumpy and throwing his toys out of the pram recently because we've been focusing uh, quite a bit on, uh, on, on birds and not enough on the slightly more obscure um, specialist bits of nature. So to keep him happy, we've let him out of his box um, to go and have a chat with a really cool guy called Dan talking about the importance of plants. And here we go. Okay, welcome, Dan. Obviously, we know each other from previous time in Shropshire, but I wanted you to come on because we've had a lot of talking about birds and plants being getting short shrift. So I wanted to get someone on who I know is passionate about plants, and hence why uh, I got in touch with you. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having us on. And uh, yeah, I, I also think that plants generally do get a bit of a short shrift. So, you know, I'm hopefully I can address the balance a bit. It feels like the obvious question now is, why should we care about plants? Ah, oh, you know, you know, why should we care? You know, there's there's so many reasons. Saying that, I didn't start off caring that much about plants. I was all looking at Jacques Cousteau things and thinking, oh, you know, I want to be underwater. I want to see all the fish. But, you know, I learned the error of my ways, obviously, that thanks in large part to a fantastic tutor called Professor uh, Ian Truman, who's... Uh, used to swear a lot, but get very, very passionate about plants. And, you know, he sort of taught a huge, huge number of really eminent botanists who are, are still kind of practicing today. And Ian's still practicing today. And I still see him. So to me, plants are just there, you know, they're at that fundamental level of the sort of food web. You know, you go back to your kind of basic food web stuff you know everything's got to eat you know and most of the time they eat something either plants directly or something that's eaten plants and you know if you kind of really want to understand anything about natural history really you kind of have to have a bit of an understanding of that sort of level in the food web there's a whole range of other ways i, I think that they're fascinating as well they, they, they provide a kind of uh, a bit of a code to understanding your 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 geology for example Sometimes it even tells me stuff about the past. So I can say, well, you know, a field, an open field, but looking at some of the species in there, it's probably a lot more shaded at one point. Sometimes you can find things like bluebells or wood sorrel and things like that still growing in fields that were cleared of woodland, you know, tens if not hundreds of years ago. And um, and that's before you start looking at just the beauty of these things, you know, the structure of these things, the patterns in the, in the head of a sunflower that are based on the Fibonacci series, for example. I have to walk around with a, a little hand lens, a little magnifying glass in my pocket. You're walking around with a hand lens? Do you get some strange looks? Yeah, I do get some strange looks. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> you kind of, you know, if you just sort of stood there standing at like a, 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 looking at a wall, for example, with, you know, little ferns and stuff growing on it, you know, you do have to have quite a, a thick skin not to kind of worry about all the people sort of walking past looking at you thinking, what is he doing, you know? I often speak to people who get really excited about plants during summer when they're in flower and everything's beautiful and they really enjoy these roadside annual seed mixes. What do you think about those? Yeah, well, I suppose there's two, there's two opposite ends of, that, of the argument for these things. They're the people that like them that say, look, these are wonderful, very pretty displays, pollinators love them and, and that sort of stuff. And, and, and then there's the sort of more purist sort of botanists that say that they're gaudy expensive rubbish basically polluting the genetic landscape of our world you know so they you know and I, and I suppose i'm i'm slightly more on the purest botanist side of things being a botanist because they are undoubtedly pretty and some of them are undoubtedly good for a, a selection of pollinators 
I say a selection because the trouble is with a lot of these mixes is, is they include mostly non-native plants. They don't have as much in the way of related insects that feed on them as the native species do. And, and they also, usually they come up, they're, they're these uh, arable weed mixes, you know, and then they flower for a year, maybe two years. And so it's much better to have a, a native meadow mix that all they need is a, is a cut, you know, in mid, mid-July or a bit later on. And you get some fantastic diversity there and you'll get all the kind of a lot more kind of interesting things that are that feed on our on our native species. So I personally don't particularly like them because they are taking resources, a lot of resources to kind of maintain this kind of very showy display, whereas those resources could be much better spent in promoting some of our native mixes. And also, there's there's a great uh, technique for uh, encouraging uh, native uh, meadow flowers, really, and it's that's that's called called green hay string because you. What you do is you get some uh, hay uh, and cut it, cut it green, and rather than letting it dry out on the fields, you, you collect it the same day, move it to a site where you want a, a whole lot of uh, meadows pieces to come out, and uh, all the seeds then drop out on site. So there are farmers out there who who sell their species rich green hay, and I've uh, I've uh, been involved in a couple of schemes where uh, I've got people like Highways Agency to through that on on roadside verges that they've just created, essentially. And you get some fantastic things coming back. But the good thing about that as well is that it supports the farmers who uh, have got these wonderful flower-rich meadows in the first place because they find it quite difficult to sell their hay. You know, you've got to also remember that quite a lot of our problem species that we've got now started out as ornamental plants, just like the ones we're chucking out on these roundabouts and things. So, you know, Himalayan balsam is a beautiful plant, you know, but you wouldn't necessarily want to be spreading that. So we've got quite a lot of very lovely looking thugs that are kind of like roaming the countryside. I saw Chris Packham um, invoked the wrath of the botanists by suggesting that it didn't matter about native plants. And I, I've got to say, it's definitely something you want to avoid. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Dan. I mean, one of the things we'd like to ask people is about something that's really special to them. And I'd like to ask you about what your favourite plant is. I think if I ask you what your favourite species is, it's inevitably going to be a plant. So let's just cut out the middleman there. What my favourite plant is? Oh, man, I, you know, I just, it's such a tricky one, really. I like some of the carnivorous plants, to be honest, because they, they grow in absolutely fantastic, you know, environments that have got really interesting specialist plants. I don't see it very often, but um, bladderwort, I think, is, is, is a really interesting one. It's got a lovely kind of yellow flower. It's a tiny little yellow flower that just comes out on a single stalk through the water. And the rest of it is underwater, lives underwater. And you have to look really carefully to see why it's carnivorous, because it has these kind of these little sacs that are uh, under pressure. So there's sacs of water that are under pressure, and they've got a little trap door. And you get these little... Uh, these water insects kind of like knocking about, you know, these little uh, cyclops things, you know, and they, and they hit these trigger hairs. And because this bladder's under, under pressure, this door comes open really quickly and sucks this little insect inside the bladder. And then the bladder door closes behind it. And then this little insect gets sort of digested inside. And it's absolutely phenomenal. It's just, just genius. You know, I think how has this thing, you know, evolved? It's absolutely bizarre. That is a niche adaptation. <laughs> it really is. Well, thanks for joining us. I look forward to seeing you soon. Great. You too. Take care. Right. Hold on a minute. So is Dan telling us that all these packets of seeds that people have been giving out and selling and planting in their gardens for the admirable uh, goal of feeding bees and other invertebrates and helping to rebuild our uh, nature from the bottom of the food chain, is Dan telling us that these are non-native and possibly invasive species that What's that all about, Gareth? 
Well, it wasn't quite like that. I've got to be honest, we had our, our chat was about 25 minutes long, so I had to cut it down a little bit. It was really interesting. I think what Dan was saying is that, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there in the countryside in terms of plants that are actually quite problematic. Um, they're either invasive and they take over our native habitats or they don't provide the same sort of food uh, supplies for insects that our native plants do. So by all means, it's better to have some flower sources than nothing and just sort of moan cropped grassland. But there are some really fantastic native wildflower choices out there. And it's much cheaper in the long run because you don't have to replant them every year. They're sustainable. They're designed to grow in this country. Um, and some of the mixes you can buy, they either just last one year. They could be non-native species that can then spread out of the countryside and conservation organizations have to try and clear them from reserves. And if you go to your garden centre and buy these bee-friendly plants, a lot of them are actually grown with pesticides. So the best thing to do is to buy native seed mix, which you know is going to have a really good result. Hmm. Isn't it the case that buddleia was often planted? Uh, people call it the butterfly bush, don't they? But I think I read a while back that actually it, it needs to be removed because it, it stops other plants from growing by taking all the light. Isn't that right? Yeah, buddleia, great for butterflies. And it's, they look really beautiful against it. I think that's what really inspires people. But there are some lovely native uh, plants uh, which can be used instead. And it is really invasive. And I know particularly people who look after sort of old historic buildings where you had limestone water, absolutely hate the stuff because it gets in all the cracks. Yeah, I was uh, driving through uh, Forrester Dean the other day and saw big swathes of buddleia um, sort of in, in little gaps in the woodland. And it, it did make me think, I was like, mm, it would be much more diverse if that had been sort of filled with more with more native species. It's a bit of a minefield, the native versus non-native thing, because obviously, you know, some non-natives are beneficial to wildlife. But um, yeah, we could do a whole episode about that. Yeah, and not every non-native is a problem species, but the ones that are really, really big problems. Mm, interesting stuff. So hopefully, listeners, you're all sitting comfortably, because now it's story time with Pete and some of his close encounters with hedgehogs. Yeah, so uh, so a number of years ago, I was living in Basingstoke, uh, and a couple of times I saw a hedgehog in the garden, and I was really excited because I hadn't seen one in absolute years, living as I had mostly in uh, in cities since I was uh, uh, since moving out of the countryside in my teens. Uh, so that was nice, starting to see hedgehogs. And then one November day, I think I got home from work and hopped out the van and was just coming in the house when I saw this little hedgehog uh, outside my house. So uh, I thought, amazing, grabbed a quick photo of it, headed inside, put it on Facebook, was all full of the joys of life. And then I realised, hang on a minute, hang on, that thing was way too small uh, to be out in winter for a hedgehog. I wasn't an expert, but even I realised that, uh, that adult hedgehogs are supposed to be bigger than that heading into hibernation. So I ran around looking for it, rooting around in the undergrowth, couldn't find it. And, and thought, oh, well, you know, what am I going to do? Luckily, the next day I saw it again, only this time it was lying on its side. And I, again, I'm not an expert, but I realised that that's probably not a very good sign for a hedgehog, is it, boys? Uh, no, no, not. no. So, uh, so I grabbed this thing, took it in the house, looked online, and, and there was a, a this. I was in Basingstoke, and up in Thatcham, not far away, there was a, a place called Hedgehog Bottom, which looks after hedgehogs. So I phoned up, and the lady answered. Uh, and uh, told me what to do. She said, get a towel, put it over a hot water bottle that's not too hot, put that in a cardboard box and stick the hedgehog on top of it, get some cat food. So I put it in the box on the on the hot water 
bottle, ran down to the shop, grabbed a sachet of cat food, got back, gave it the cat food and some water. And by the time I got back from the shop, it had already perked right up from being on a hot water bottle and immediately started munching its way through all this food and drinking the water. So instant recovery. And at that point, I arranged to take it up to the rescue center uh, that evening. So we took it up there. Now, this place must have had 120, 130 hedgehogs in it all being looked after uh, in, in different containers, which was quite an overwhelming thing to see. Uh, and it was clear that they were overwhelmed almost, so or, or certainly must be near capacity. So we agreed that after it had been looked after, we'd take it back to our house, keep it in the spare room, uh, clean it, water it, feed it. And then when it got big enough, uh, uh, as at the end of winter, we were to release it. So that's what we did. It, it was dehydrated. It was undernourished. It had parasites and all of these things were, were removed and sorted. So we went back, got this hedgehog fed it up and then when we released it in the spring it was over a kilo in size it had been 300 grams when we picked it up so it wouldn't have survived the winter probably at that size Uh, and that was that but then the following year when they were getting calls from other people oh yeah I should say we had a a local couple supporting us to look after this thing who we were very grateful to and then the next year when when Hedgehog Bottom were getting calls uh, to to hedgehogs that needed picking up uh, in the local area, we started taking it. I started doing that, picking them up, taking them to this couple, or taking them up to the rescue centre. And then when winter came around, because once again they were getting full, we ended up uh, uh, my ex-wife and I with uh, three or four hedgehogs in the spare room, uh, which made the whole house smell pretty weird. I can tell you, uh, <laughs> but uh, but it was wonderful seeing them close up, their individual characteristics, how long their legs are when they're trying to climb out of a plastic tub when you're cleaning them, which is a which was a shock to me. Uh, and we overwintered these things and then we'd either release them in our garden or they'd go back to where they were picked up from, which is the ideal thing, and they'd be released. So that was great. However, sadly, after after that winter, the following year, there was some work done on the school uh, behind our house. And that was the last time we ever saw a hedgehog in the garden. So it, it seemed like one change had been made. I don't know what. Uh, and that seemed like that local community of hedgehogs disappeared and we never saw another one again. Subsequently, I've talked about that to people and I've met so many people. I used to talk to the public about uh, about wildlife uh, for my job. Uh, and I've heard this story probably dozens of times. People who used to have them in their garden but no longer do, uh, which is a, a pity. And it fits the pattern, I'm afraid, because uh, Gareth might be able to tell us. But I've even heard that it could be that hedgehogs eventually could go extinct from the UK. So something I'm very interested in, Gareth, is I've heard lots of people accusing badgers of being responsible. Of course, people never want to accept that the real reason, in my mind, that ecosystems are collapsing is humans and not badgers or magpies or whatever. Uh, so what do you think, Gareth? Is it badgers' fault that we're losing hedgehogs from the UK? Um, a typical scientist's response is it's really complex. I think as humans, we like simple solutions, particularly if they're not uh, blaming us. There's been a lot of research on this in recent years, and what they've basically found is that badgers and hedgehogs are what we call they're this intraguild relationship. So badgers are intraguild predators, and what that means is they both share similar sort of diets, but badgers will occasionally eat hedgehogs as well. Now, the important thing to note is that hedgehog is a very, very, very small component of badger diet, so it's nowhere near enough for badgers predating hedgehogs to be the reason why hedgehogs are declining. Um, but there is a lot of evidence that where you find high densities of badgers, you find low densities of hedgehogs. And what's probably happening is there's a complex relationship between the loss of hedgehog habitat, which you know hedgehogs and badgers share some similar foraging habitat, and the decline in the quality of habitat. So 
what you find is badgers and hedgehogs are coming together more often than they normally would because there's less good spaces for them to to coexist and they're probably coming to competition for food more than they normally would as well because invertebrates have been taking a big hit so it is not completely known how it's working but what you tend to see is that so urban areas are becoming more important for hedgehog populations and rural areas particularly have got quite intensive farming are becoming uh, less suitable for hedgehogs and a lot of it's due to the loss of this foraging ha- habitat so really to summarize a, a carnivore predation will only finish off what humans have started so Hedgehogs should be able to take predation. Their population should be robust to be able to sustain very low levels of predation by badgers. The reason they're not is because there's lots of other things that are affecting um, their sustainability of these populations. And badgers, unfortunately, can sometimes be the nail in the coffin. But when you go back, you think for tens of thousands of years, the two species quite happily coexisted. So let's think about the thing that's changed. And I think then you can come to your obvious conclusion. Hmm. Well, that's what I suspected, Gareth. Thank you. That's a great answer. So that's almost it for episode six. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're going to be busy over the next couple of weeks making the next episode. Um, If you'd like to get involved, maybe come on the show or tell us some stories or send us some uh, cool sounds that you've heard, um, then please do. You can contact us through all of the social media channels. You can also find the podcast on all of the podcast platforms now so go on there and subscribe and follow um, or like or whatever it is you do um, and then when the new episode comes out uh, they'll let you know so to play us out uh, this week we got a recording uh, sent to us by a guy called Mark uh, on Instagram it's Mark from MB underscore UK photos And it's a recording that he made, maybe out when he was taking photos, um, of the Dawn Chorus um, in Hesse, which is uh, near where I used to live, actually, in North Yorkshire. So um, thanks again. Have a good couple of weeks. Get out and enjoy nature. When it sounds as glorious as this, how could you say no?